Ah, another chill Sunday afternoon. Time to just crack open a cold beer, pull up YouTube, and watch uh, clips from the Meg 2 on YouTube. Here we go. Ah, Meg 2, all Meg scenes. 25 minutes. Perfect. Aaron! Ah! Jesus Christ! I'm sorry, I know that's the fifth time I've done that today. <laughs> what is it this time? I have a problem. What, what's your problem? I have a new problem. Oh, okay. So, I was out last night. I was at the club. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're having one of those Black Plague-themed club nights. Love those. Yeah, I met this... It's weird they do those every other week. <laughs> and strange that the death rate, they're so high. <laughs> <laughs> so few repeat faces. <laughs> I saw this absolutely gorgeous girl there. Oh, yeah. We got to talking. Ooh. And we hit it Spicy. off. Spicy. I guess I had a little bit too much of ye old ale, because... It happens to the best of us. The two of us decided, you know, what if we just ran off right now and we just got married? So we did. So are you meaning to say that you are now married to a woman from the Middle Ages? Yeah, we found one of those all-night courts, you know? <laughs> we went to night court. <laughs> and, um, and we tied the knot, and yeah. It was, I'm, I'm now married to a girl from 13th century England. I mean, congratulations, but what's the problem? So, we woke up this morning uh -huh. in the stables. Mm -hmm. On a bale of hay, I On imagine. a bale of hay. Yeah. And we got to talking, and you know, she seems so nice and yeah. so friendly and so sweet, and so few of plague buboes the day before, but <clears throat> I kind of realized, you know, I think she just got married to me for a visa. One of those visas for the 21st century She that just have. doesn't want to get deported back to medieval England. One of them time travel visas exactly. by the time cops. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. So, the problem is, like, I'd normally just leave her, just like I leave all of the other beautiful women I seduce, but uh -huh. now we're married. Yeah. I mean, I can't just leave my wife. Well, luckily for you, I'm an expert in divorce law. Oh, medieval divorce law. Yeah, we did a, a module on it in my undergrad. Wow, medieval divorce. So tell me what I need to do to divorce this girl. Well, there's just one problem. What's that? Uh, it's illegal. No! The feast is all. Now brimming wine in lordly cup is seen to shine before each eager guest. And silence fills the crowded hall as deep as when the herald's call thrills in the loyal breast. All right, welcome back to the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. This episode is promised to be our hottest one yet. Yeah, and I don't mean that in the sense that it's going to be sexy. I mean that it's 30 degrees in London. We had to shut all the windows and turn off the fan. I'm already sweltering. I look like I'm in a sauna. I am it's really, having a blast. It's the least appealing <laughs> I've ever felt in my life. <laughs> But hey, it's hot girl summer, and yes. what's more summery than getting divorced? And divorce is what this episode of the podcast is all about. That's right. By the end of this episode, you're going to know all about how to get divorced from your hot medieval wife. God, I miss her. <laughs> Come you back, guys? Clotilda. <laughs> <laughs> my buxom Come wench. Back. Come back, my buxom wife, Cloaca. <laughs> so. Honk. Honk yourself. Yeah, sorry. That's just that was just a goose, an errant goose. 
Um, that was another errant. Oh no, they're getting closer. <laughs> Anyways, um, so as we've already said, getting divorced in the Middle Ages in basically all of Christian Europe was not very easy. In fact, it was impossible. So if you can't separate from your spouse, as so many of us often do today, you might, you might be wondering why get married in the first place? So needless to say, people in the Middle Ages did get married. They got married very often. In fact, almost everyone got married in the Middle Ages in Christian Europe. From a king to a pauper. Yep, exactly. And by the way, just for convenience's sake in this episode, I'm probably going to be saying things like medieval Europe and medieval people. And I'm really just using this as shorthand for medieval Christian people. So yeah, I obviously don't mean everyone, but broadly everyone who was part of the Christian church. So don't post about it. Exactly. What I, well, if there's one thing I've learned from Potato Gate, yeah. it's the don't wait till halfway through the episode to reveal the bit. Yeah, I don't know if we need to do like a YouTube apology <laughs> video, but the, the number of comments that we've gotten about Still, the fact that to we... To this day! To be fair, we did make the point of repeatedly saying in four different episodes that medieval people eat potatoes, which is categorically untrue. Yeah. And we just we just kind of relied on the, the good faith and the generosity of our audience to understand that this was in jest. Just trust us, please. Just trust us. <laughs> We're not complete morons. <laughs> But we do know that medieval people didn't eat potatoes. And if you listen to the end of our episodes, you'll know that we know that, too. Yeah. Anyway, that's just a bit of housekeeping. Back to marriage. So why would, so why would you get married, then? If you're, like, an average Joe. If you're, if you're Joe the farmhand, and you meet uh, a buxom young lass called, like, Chlamydia or something. <laughs> as um, they were. As, 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 as people would be back then. Um, why get married? What's the point? Well, there's a few different reasons. So, of course, a marriage was a union, as it still is, and a marriage was a means of starting a family. So two people who were married could support each other financially and support each other, you know, in having a household together. They could then have children together with the knowledge that the children would be able to help them out and support them. Um, when the children got older, of course, there was the matter of love. Sometimes people fell in love and wanted to be together for the rest of their lives. What a poetic way to say uh, that getting married is a great way to get laid. Well, it's important to note that <laughs> just as it is now in the Catholic Church and in many churches, sex before marriage was heavily condemned Big by no the Catholic no. Church, by the medieval church. And so if you wanted to have sex then you have to get married. Um, and so there are actually great sort of medieval legal records, basically where the case goes something like, oh, Mrs. X and Mr. Y were spending some time together and they decided mm. all of a sudden that, you know, <laughs> they were going to get married. <laughs> oh, and brilliant. so it was often quite a very sort of, it could be a very spur of the moment thing for the average person. Expeditious. Certainly. Mid-tryst. <laughs> yep. But it wasn't quite so sort of cut and dry if you were higher up the social ladder, was it? No, because an, an important thing to note about uh, the way that medieval societies were organized is that a lot of power uh, is hereditary. And that's obviously, like 
kings, most kings were were hereditary monarchs, not elected or appointed, although some were. My God, one day we're going to do an episode about that. That whole th- remember that whole stupid thing from the end of Game of Thrones where yeah. you're like, let's vote for the king. That was real. Uh, God bless the polls. Anyway, um, so if 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 your if your power is passed down in a hereditary way, you need to make sure that you have heirs that are uh, legitimate. And the only way you can have legitimate heirs is if they are born in wedlock to somebody that you're married to. And uh, a great illustration of, of how problematic it can be if you die without heirs as a king is from one of my favorite stories of all time. It's the Scottish Wars of Independence. You know, the whole, the whole William Wallace, uh, Robert Bruce, they may take our lives thing. Uh, brilliant story. We'll do an episode about it one day, I promise. But anyway, all you need to know for the purposes of this is that the whole war starts after uh, it's the wedding night of um, King Alexander III of Scotland. He's got one child. Uh, called Margaret. Well, he's in Edinburgh at this point. It's, it's his wedding night. He's having his big feast. Um, all the lads are there, uh, but the wife's not. The wife is over in Fife, which, for those of you who don't know Scottish geography, is over the water. It's across the Firth of Forth from Edinburgh. Back then, you needed to take a ferry. And King Alexander III took a notion midway through the feast. He was like, I'm going to go and visit my beautiful young wife. <laughs> I should decide for context, he was fucking steamed at this point. <laughs> Famously hammered. And they, all the kings, all the king's advisors were like, Your Honor, I really don't think that's a very good idea. <laughs> anyway. So he's like, I've got a hot babe on five. Which, um, it is a flex, because there's not that many of them. In there five. are, sorry, fifers. It's, a, it's an Edinburgh thing, you got to understand. Anyway, so he's... Uh, he sets out on his horse with one other one other guy with him to get to to get to the to Queen's Ferry to get the ferry, um, and somewhere <laughs> along the road he falls off his horse and just dies. <laughs> and this is a disaster because they're like, okay, right, okay, we've got this child called Margaret over in Norway who's going to get married to the Norwegian. We need to get her over here, stat. Because, like, she's the heir to the throne. Meanwhile, the King of England is looking over the border like, Ooh. Oh, hello. Shame about your monarch. Shame about your powerful, successful, um, uh, militarily uh, efficient king being replaced by a, a young child. Your power seems to have developed a vacuum. Yeah, and it only gets worse because then Margaret doesn't even make it to Scotland before she dies. I don't think she makes it to Orkney. You wonder how they made it that far, this bloodline. Oh, God, wow. They don't seem the most robust. Well, immediately, this is a disaster because all of a sudden you have, like, 15 different families, all of whom have variously uh, accurate but equally strongly held beliefs that they are the sort of legitimate heirs, and you have to pick somebody, and it's an absolute mess. So the King of England, Edward I, he's like... Don't worry, chaps. We can settle this between us as men. And he's like, I'll be the independent adjudicator. Just one thing. For anybody to be considered to be the next king of Scotland, they have to swear an oath of allegiance to me. (laughs) And of course, they all go through with it because, you know, you think I'll deal with that problem later. (laughs) (laughs) And he eventually picks a guy called John Balliol. It doesn't go well. And eventually uh, he gets sick of dealing with John Balliol, defeats John Balliol, and annexes the kingdom. And... That's where Braveheart picks up for all you those yanks who like that movie. So anyway, all that is a long-winded way of saying uh, marriage is incredibly important. 
That was the most beautiful tangent I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. And of course, inheritance, all the less so inheritance of power, was also a concern for the average person because oh, yeah. if you were a subsistence farmer, as many people were back in the day, your land, if you owned any land, was your sole source of income, basically. And, it and was, also your tools. And your tools. Like and your, all of your property. Your scythe, your kern, your milk jugs. Yep, exactly. Gotta hold on to your milk jugs, um, no matter what. Hang on, hang on. My phone went. Just say, please just say that last line again. Oh, you hate me. <laughs> <laughs> say it. Gotta say hang it. on to your milk jugs, no matter no, what. No, no, sorry, you, you interrupted me. Say that one more time. It's absolutely imperative that one hangs on to one's milk jugs. <laughs> God, you're a child. So getting married was a way of um, solidifying or, you know, cementing that that those possessions would stay in the family. And yeah. of course, if you were a man and a landowner, as most landowners were, mm -hmm. then it was also important to get married so that in the event that anything happened to you, those things could be passed on to your wife, who otherwise probably would have very little in the way of possessions or ways to make do. So. Oh no, my wife. My wife. My wife has no side. She has no land to till. <laughs> so essentially marriage, you know, obviously could happen for, and did happen for love, but it was also a very important, you know. Economic sort of, and you know, political decision. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, so we've covered the why get married. How get married? <laughs> I'm always asking that. <laughs> so, as we've already said, it can differ a bit depending on where you are on the social ladder. Yeah, if you're a king or a big landowner, you get married in a big church, maybe even a cathedral. Three. A churchman or a bishop will officiate the wedding. It'll be logged by the local clergy and it's all good. Yeah, but funnily enough, for a lot of the Middle Ages, actually, if you were just, again, an average person, you didn't need all that brouhaha, getting married was actually quite simple. So mm -hmm. early on when I said, oh, a lot of people got married so they could have sex, essentially, actually, for a lot of the Middle Ages, there wasn't very much formal component at all to a marriage. Mm -hmm. So Especially for a normal person. Exactly. So up until around the 13th century, um, all you actually needed to do to get married, you needed two things. You needed to agree to get married to the other person. You needed mutual consent to marry. Mm -hmm. And then you need to have sex. You need to yeah. consummate the marriage. And that's all you need. So when I say people were getting married to have sex, I really do mean <laughs> people were deciding they wanted to have sex with each other. And then in order to do that, saying, okay, we'll get married. <laughs> Look, it's a, it's a mutually beneficial, like, it's a virtuous cycle. Absolutely. You need to have sex to get married, and you need to get married to have sex. Yeah, which came first? Um, sex yeah, is the answer. Sex. But I was reading through different cases and um, registers. Um, As you like and, to do and, on a Friday night. And parish rolls. This was actually a Saturday night, I'll have you know. Oh, look at you. And um, this is a bit of a non sequitur, but I was... Um, well, also, we love that. That's what we're all about. I was reading through through court records, and um, there were also sort of some crimes sprinkled in the mix. And I was yes. just very chuffed at the very medieval mix of crimes. Um, me hit me, hit me. Many hit me, of which me. were rural. So we have bad mowing... <laughs> That's a pretty good band name, actually. Yeah. Trespass in the corn. <laughs> Even better. 
Bad night. We have one guy who was brought to court for two crimes. One was pasturing more pigs of his own than he ought to have. <laughs> that other... bitch has too many pigs. <laughs> the other was allowing his lord's pigs to perish. <gasps> and um, the last one that I read about that I thought was quite funny was yeah. um, the, the, the plaintiff in the case was a man named Alan. And Alan had been traveling along the road. This was in medieval England. Forget the dates, but they're not important. What, what's important is what happened to Alan. Oh, no. So a couple who lived in the area came out, intercepted Alan, and dragged him into their house. They then <laughs> held him down and took turns, each cutting off one of his balls. And then they robbed him, took all of his stuff, and threw him out on the street. And what's funny isn't that, but the fact that Alan brought this to court. The sheriff went to this couple's house, found Alan's stolen stuff. Including Alan's stolen balls. Found his balls in a cup. (laughs) And the entire case was thrown out because Alan had also accused them of breaking his arm and his arm wasn't broken when he appeared in court. So they considered the entire plea to be void. So they just got away with it. And this man was left ballless for the rest of his life. English people. Fucking savages. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah. bit of a non sequitur, but... But funny. But funny. So marriage was not necessarily a formal process. But there were certain customs around it because, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, this whole process of agreeing to get married and having sex afterwards, if there was any kind of question of the legality of your union or whether it had taken place, it was really just your word against your partner's. So yes, this is why there's the custom of bringing in a witness to a ceremony is because then you have someone who can attest to the fact that you guys did get married. And often the person who was a witness was a clergyman or a church official who was informed after the fact and would write this down and have it in their records. Which was because marriage, it's important to note at this point, is a spiritual thing, technically. Like, it has, it has legal implications, but it's, but it's governed by the church, in theory. So that there's no civil marriages at this point. That's not something that the state has any role in. It's something that, you know, is basically just left to people to do on their own or do in the presence of a religious official. And I say, by the way, that applies whether or not you're a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, for the most part, in this period. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is why there's no marriage contract, for instance, because marriage was seen as something that God had created, and it was the natural state for a man and a woman to coexist in. And so there was no need for the concept of bringing in, you know, a legal aspect to it. And so in that sense, today people might read the Bible and say, oh, Adam and Eve weren't married because, you know, they didn't have modern marriage rights yet. But to a medieval Christian, those people were husband and wife. Yeah. You'd be like, well, what what on earth are you talking about? (laughs) Exactly. They liked each other and they had sex. So So they must have been married. They must have been married. And they're in the Bible. So they definitely didn't have premarital sex. (laughs) So, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious cut and dry case, if you ask me. I think so.
So yeah, you found your perfect medieval partner, mm -hmm. and whether you're a rich aristocrat, and marrying this person is going to solidify your political power, or you're just a humble turnip farmer, and this buxom wench is <laughs> making <going> the to... <laughs> eyes. Exactly, is making batting the... her eyelids at you, <laughs> batting her eyelids at you from across the marketplace. <laughs> now you're in it for life. Yeah, and it was shockingly easy. So now all you have to do is be happy forever after, right? Which is what always happens with marriages. It's just that simple. Yeah. So, of course, as we know, it's not always, unfortunately, that easy. And oftentimes, as they do now, people who were married in the Middle Ages didn't always want to stay together for life. Yeah, and by the way, in case you think we're like pessimists or whatever we did a whole episode before this about guys who love their wives yeah we're just showing we're showing both sides to it this is the sequel that's right <laughs> we're doing a sequel we're already out of ideas <laughs> yep uh, this is the weird medieval guys extended universe and so people wanted to separate from their partners for reasons that are as many and as varied as the reasons why people want to get separated today so as always infidelity was a huge one. Yep. If your partner was sleeping around, no one liked that. Um, well, some people do. Some people do, but that's not who this episode Look, is if about. That's, if that's your thing, whatever, <laughs> no judgment. It's not in the Bible, that's all I'll say. Well, actually it is. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you know what? Okay. Um, so, infidelity, always a big one. Um, and as well, impotence. So we've talked mm. about how marriage could be a really important means of creating a bloodline and thus securing power or property. If it turns out that your husband or your wife is not able to do that thing with you, then that was often a reason why people would want to be separated. And just like today, there's much greater legal record of this for ordinary people than for aristocrats, but Things like cruelty and abuse mm. and mistreatment were reasons why people often wanted to separate. Most often in court records, these were instances of women being abused or mistreated by their husbands, although there were also instances of husbands trying to separate from their wives because they felt that their wives were <laughs> nagging them too much or were difficult to be around. So I hate my bitch wife so much. <laughs> So less physical cruelty, perhaps, in the records that we have, but I guess a, a perceived degree of emotional cruelty. So, um... It was like those boomer memes that are like... <laughs> Satan, I don't know, you're, you're, Satan shows up, he's like, I must take one of you. Please take my wife. <laughs> Send my wife to hell, I hate my wife so yeah, much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wife bad. <laughs> I'm always saying it. <laughs> but of course, as we've said already, and I think we can maybe hammer this, this point home now, is that divorce wasn't just uh, difficult in the Middle Ages. It was illegal. Yeah, the whole premise of this episode is a lie. Because there is no concept of divorce in the Middle Ages. Like, a marriage is a permanent union. This is a very important distinction to make that's going to come up later. You could not get divorced, because a marriage, once it is made, it is a permanent union that cannot be revoked. The only conditions under which you can separate and end a marriage is if you can prove 
that the marriage was never valid in the first place. That it is, you can get an annulment. Yeah, so technically this isn't a divorce because it's almost like getting legal recognition that you were never married in the first place. Yeah, exactly. It's like if you had a wedding ceremony with a rock. It wouldn't, it wouldn't <laughs> hold up in court, even if you went through the proper process. Now, Your Honor, my client <laughs> has been very unfairly treated in this process. And he was can... taken for granted. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't just if you wanted to get married to a crystalline structure of uh, minerals that your marriage would not be considered valid. There were also other reasons. So impotence was one of these reasons. Your marriage wasn't producing children. Well, according to the Bible... Having kids is basically the reason why God created marriage in the first place. So, if you could prove that it was not possible for you and your spouse to have kids, or if you could prove that the marriage had never been consummated, mm. then you could argue that that was grounds for an annulment. Your Honor, we never even had sex. God, that, it's just, that would just be so sad. I think there was a period of like... Imagine how we just stand up in front of like everybody and say, didn't even do it. <laughs> well, there was in some cases, and I, I don't know how widely this was used, but there was a, a process that was used in, I believe, medieval England where you had to try to have sex under observation. <laughs> Which, to, would... be, to be fair, I mean, like... If you wanted, a, if you wanted conditions to prove that it was never going to happen, it's not going to, it's not, it's not the sexiest yeah. environment when you have like yep. the, the local, the local bishop standing over you taking notes very solemnly. Yep. So what were some other reasons that might make a marriage invalid? Well, there's a concept called consanguinity, which is translated to our modern parlance, incest. Basically, if you can prove that the, the, uh, the two people are related by blood, it's not a valid marriage. And this was pretty, a pretty lenient definition, wasn't it? I think perhaps more broad than even what we would consider to be incest today, because I think if you could prove that you had, at the very sort of most distant, I think it was a great, great, great grandparent in common... And there's not that many people around back then. Yeah, then... So most people, I feel like, have one. <laughs> that would violate that. And of course, if you're a royal, you know, a famously inbred group of people, it wasn't always difficult to propose that you and your wife were actually, or you and your husband, were actually too closely related for it to be a valid marriage. But for the same reason, I think the very fact that it's such, a, it's such an easy thing to prove... Um, and, and the rules are so lenient, suggests that it is quite a cynically <laughs> kind of used rule in that it's, it's very convenient to be able to prove. Absolutely. And you could just not prove it. And many of these people to. were aware of a degree of interrelation between them and their spouse before they were married, but they chose not to bring it up because it was a politically convenient union. Mm-hmm. So this rule didn't stop people from marrying their cousins. There are other reasons as well, um, the less common ones. So for instance, coercion or deception. If you could prove that the person that you married wasn't who you thought they were when yes, you married them. catfishing. If they were in disguise. We had medieval catfishing. <laughs> yeah. I am your new husband. <laughs> Do not pull too hard on my mustache. 
What do you My mean? My name is Pierre Baguette. I am your husband from France. I've always had these very thick glasses. <laughs> yep. And, um... In fact, this might surprise you as well, but it was also the case that you could prove a marriage was invalid if one of the people in the union was underage. So this conflicts certainly with what we think of as being medieval standards of marriage, because people think, oh, everyone got married when they were 12. Child brides. So it is certainly the case that people often obtained special provisions to get married to people who were very underage, often girls who are underage, but also boys, on the condition that they didn't um, consummate the marriage until their spouse was of age. But this was... It's really more of like a putting in a pre-order. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> pre-order wife. <laughs> Dibs. Just a reminder, because we haven't talked about it yet, you can pre-order the Weird Medieval Guys book Woo-hoo! now. Link in the description. Yes. Um... But anyways, um, but when it came to the average person, this um, would have been sort of a bit more of a a practical consideration as well, although wouldn't always have been hugely important because worth noting that people in the Middle Ages, especially average people, didn't get married as early as people thought. I was reading a study of average marriage ages in England, age at first marriage for, I think it was women, um, between... I think it was the 12th and the 14th centuries. Would you like to take a guess what the average age was for first marriage? I'm going to go out on a limb and say, like, 23. 27. What? Yeah. Wow. That's me, Tell. Yeah, exactly. And a big part of that was because once you have kids as a medieval couple, you kind of want your money's worth. (laughs) You want them to help out. (laughs) And especially if you're like a first child, you're gonna mm. be you're gonna be raising your younger siblings. Believe me, you'll be putting in <laughs> a lot of childcare time. Oh, I know. So it wasn't so even though women were often kind of just passed from like their, you know, immediate families to their husbands, there wasn't a period of independent living the way there is now. Um it wasn't always like, oh, we're going to get rid of this person at the ear- our earliest convenience, because having an extra pair of hands around the house, as it turns out, pretty helpful. Yeah, you don't actually want somebody to get married and leave <laughs> um, when, you, when there's, like, oxen to be milked. Yes, that's what you do with your oxen. <laughs> and that's what I do with mine. I don't know about you. And all this stuff, as we mentioned before, is very high stakes for royals because, again, their power is hereditary. So having a, a child-bearing partner um, is incredibly, incredibly important. And people would go to tremendous lengths uh, sometimes to separate from their partners if, if it was convenient to do so. And the example I like to, to, I like to use uh, to tell this story is uh, the story of Lothair II, king of Lotharingia. Not a coincidence, don't worry. So Lothair was one of a triumvirate of uh, Carolingian kings in sort of what is now France. He was ruling what is now the Lorraine of France, and he was ruling with his two uncles, right? Which is already, by the way, a setup like that is objectively hilarious. Just like, imagine you, you, Olivia, now imagine your two uncles. Oh, fuck no. <laughs> Either of my uncles are listening to this. Nothing personal. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there, okay? It's a funny image. Anyway, so, uh, Lothair 
has a wife. And oh my god, I should preface this by saying, this story has some of the best names yes. of any medieval story that we've ever done. Um, can you read, I, can you please do the name? So his wife was Tutberga. Awesome! Yes! So cool. And he also has a mistress, but we'll get back to her, called... Waldrada. Waldrada and Tutberga. They sound like a couple of bad bitches. They should have <laughs> gotten together. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Queens. By the way, historically speaking, Lothair is regarded as a bit of a fuckwit. Yeah. Like, he's he doesn't really do anything. All he does is chase tail and uh, and try and get an annulment from his wife, Tutberga, because Tutberga won't give him a child. And he's not best happy about that. He also, as I said, he has a side piece who he'd quite like to get with. So he, he, he he's trying to get rid of Tutberger. First thing he does, he puts her away. Sorry, I should say. It's really important. This is a very unstable kingdom, Lotharinge. I mean, it, it existed for, what, like a hundred years? Oh, yeah, no, this was like, blink and you'll miss it. So he's trying to pop one out as quickly as possible. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. <laughs> so in order to get an annulment, which he needed approval from, from the church to do, Lothair alleged that uh, Tutberger was... Uh, having what can only be described as an anal affair with her brother, and he sought an annulment. Lothair tried to get her put away, uh, but a guy named Huckbert... Huckbert! Yes, threatened to raise arms, and she was restored after, apparently, uh, the ordeal by water. Can you tell them a little bit about what that was? So I believe this is where, in order to prove whether or not someone is innocent... They are asked to dip their hand into a pot of boiling water, or sometimes boiling oil was used, which is just great, deep fry your hand, and retrieve a stone or a rock that was sitting at the bottom of a pot. And if you could do this without being injured, then you were declared innocent. And it was commonplace for women who were considered to be sort of, you know, too delicate to go about these things on their own, because men are just so robust to boiling oil. <laughs> It was commonplace for a woman <laughs> to be able to nominate someone on their behalf to undergo this ordeal. So that's why Huckbert did this on Tutberga's behalf. Yes, what a king. Huckbert and Tutberga. So after she, so she passes the ordeal by water. And so she gets restored as queen. And he's like, oh. It should be noted that it's alleged that because Tutberga had sort of very politically influential family members that they rigged the trial. Which, no. As you mean that this isn't a very efficient way of, like, determining <laughs> innocence? <laughs> How did they rig it? Um, just by, you know, making the water not as hot as it <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the political... Here's some water I boiled earlier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's probably still hot. Uh, um, so... Lothair is getting desperate. He's like, my wife, she's not dead. <laughs> um, so he petitions his uncle, one of his uncles, uh, Charles the Bald. Another just fantastic name um, in this story, uh, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. Who was like, all right, fine. I'll have a word with the, with the church and get my stupid nephew off the hook. My stupid childless nephew. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he gets a, he gets a council of Frankish bishops together and they're like, yeah, this is, this is totally, uh, above board. Uh, she should be annulled. But that gets vetoed by the Pope. And so Charles the Bald is like, oh my God, just for goodness sake. So he sends troops to Rome to try and get the Pope to back down. The Pope doesn't back down. 
So they're they're screwed essentially. Anyway, at this point, Tootberger says, "Actually, I changed my mind. I want to get an annulment as well." <laughs> Which it's debatable whether or not there was like coercion involved in that. But I like to think that she was just genuinely so embarrassed by the entire experience that she was just like, "I, I, you know what? Screw all of you." <laughs> It's not <laughs> screw this, to imagine. Screw this whole family of idiots um, who are ruining my life. I'm out of here. Let him have Wahlberger. <laughs> and so Lothair goes to Rome to get consent for his new marriage from uh, the new pope who's just been installed. Anyway, he gets it, and uh, he's, he's heading back to his kingdom from Rome, and on the road, he just dies. So a wonderful little shaggy dog story. <laughs> Coen Brothers, if you're listening, this would make a great sort of burn after reading kind <laughs> of like, kind of like screwball comedy. Just, just you know, call me. By the way, um, before we get out of this particular story, I just wanted to give you a couple more great names. Yes. So, um, Lothair's mother was named Ermengarde. Yes. And Tootberga's mother was named Engeltruda. Engeltruda. Which I think is just wonderful. I love the Franks. Yeah. They're such a. They're so underrated because they don't. Their names don't sound like anything else that's ever existed. Yeah. <laughs> their whole vibe is so like unique. Yeah. No, I love them. Uh, they're they're great. Anyway, we've mentioned uh, the Pope, and we've mentioned the process by which an annulment could actually take place. And it's really important, I think, to, to delve a little bit more into uh, what the actual, like, practical legal process was for getting an annulment. Because, like we said before, a marriage is not a legal thing that the central state is responsible for enforcing. It's, it's a religious and spiritual union that just happens to have political and economic implications. So yeah, so so if, if I wanted to get a, an annulment from my wife, where would I go to do that? So, even though marriage was a religious rather than a civil institution, luckily in the Middle Ages we had not just civil courts, but also separate religious courts. <gasps> That's right. Wow. These were known as ecclesiastical or canonical courts, and they were courts that oversaw matters of religion, just like how we have different levels of court today. So in the US, for instance, a case can go all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, in a medieval ecclesiastical court, you could you know, have a case that goes theoretically all the way up to the Pope, if it's important enough, like Tutberga and Lothair's annulment. But realistically, if you're a normal person, you're probably only gonna get one hearing, and it's probably gonna be some local either bishop or um, some guy that they have who's, who happens to be sort of an expert on canon law. Yeah, and there were even people who were simply called canons whose job was to officiate and to make decisions in these ecclesiastical courts. Um, and in many ways they functioned a lot like civil courts, so it was their job to hear a case and you could present evidence, you could bring witnesses, so hopefully you have a witness to your marriage, for instance, if you have a marital dispute that you've brought to a canon court. Um, and then it's their job to make a decision. And their decisions were every bit as binding and they could, um, as 
civil courts and they could impose, you know, punishments and they could impose, you know, um, essentially religious law just as easily as civil courts could yeah. impose civil law. So they're pretty powerful. So you have two parallel legal systems essentially operating at the same time, one of which is sort of, in theory, answerable to the to the you know, the temporal monarch, and another another parallel sort of set of laws that are answerable to, ultimately, the Pope and, and the, the institutions of the Catholic Church. Exactly, and in some ways, the ecclesiastical courts were much more sort of organized, even, and um, sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, sort of more wide-reaching than the civil courts because because well, they're put together big by big nerds yeah because and, and because religion was a much more centralized institution than nations were in mm -hmm. many cases yeah absolutely and it's another thing that's important to note is that in many cases you know the, these courts weren't just dealing with marriage they were dealing with anything that was sort of seen to be within the the purview of of, of canon law so if you were a member of the clergy or a monk you could be tried in a religious court for a nominally civil offense rather than in, in a civil court which was a big deal because yeah. they were much 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 less uh, strict with punishment in the religious courts yeah so they did not use the death penalty ever uh instead it would be things like you had to go up and apologize at mass or you'd have to do a mandatory pilgrimage which you know yep. would be a pain in the ass but if but between that and like getting your head cut off yeah sounds pretty good to me but of course, another thing to note is in a society where religion is kind of baked into the DNA of everyday life, the division between what's a religious crime and what, who is a religious person and what are the limits of the church court system's sovereignty were often quite ambiguous. So you would basically, you know, if, if you, you could, as a, as a nominally lay person, if you could prove that you were sufficiently learned and sufficiently religious, basically by reciting enough Bible verses, you could theoretically get... Uh, you could get tried in the uh, in the church court system rather than in uh, in in the the royal courts. Yeah, absolutely, and um, it's also worth noting that you might be familiar with this fact already if you're listening to this. That sort of religious organizations and religious officials in the Middle Ages weren't always perfect. <laughs> paragons of religious morality and what? incorruptible sort of dedication to the church's teachings. And so these uh, churches, these church courts often, depending on the amount of money and the amount of political power that you had, in some cases they could be swayed much more easily than mm. royal courts. And it's, it's worth noting as well that you had to pay to have your case heard at a um, ecclesiastical court. It was often sort of extortionately expensive if you wanted to bring something like a marital dispute to um, an ecclesiastical court, then yeah, you'd better hope that you have a very stable income and plenty of money to throw away because there's not even a guarantee, of course, that you're going to get the outcome that you want. Yeah. And another thing to note is that as we learn from the wonderful story of Lothair and Huckbert and Teutonberg uh, and all the other all the other wacky characters from earlier, it's that the king is answerable to the canon court as well. The king is not sovereign in the way that we sort of understand 
today. Like, there's no hierarchy here. These are two parallel systems that operate um, with different different accountability sort of structures. And that means that, you know, in the, in the medieval world, the medieval Christian world, you don't have a system of what we would now consider to be sovereign states. You have these sort of, these parallel institutions that sort of overlap and stretch over different parts of life and, and do different things. And it's, it's 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 a it's a much more complicated system of authority, and and uh, and power than we're used to. Where it's like, oh, you did a crime, well, you're under arrest from you know the police, singular. <laughs> <laughs> so, say that you want to initiate um, the, some sort of proceedings for separating from your spouse then you'd better be prepared to pay up and take this case before an ecclesiastical court. And this wasn't actually always something that happened, especially when it was sort of average people who were getting divorced. So Because it's just a huge pain. It's a huge pain it's in expensive, the It's expensive. Just like, move away. And so the records that we have of marital disputes in court paint sort of a very unfavorable picture of how these things were carried out, but there were of course lots of separations that weren't recorded because they happened mutually and mm. people simply went their separate ways. So if, for instance, two partners were to be separated and then, for instance, both remain in the same community and both remarry, that's the kind of thing that might cause something to be brought to the courts, but say one person leaves town or both of them leave town, or, you know, say that they both just start living independently for whatever reason or with family, then it's certainly the case that people wouldn't always have gone through the formal process to try to get their marriage broken up because, as we've said before, just a very difficult thing to do. And in a pre-bureaucratic society where these, these kinds of things aren't recorded or aren't recorded very well, it is possible to just, like you say, leave town and no one would ever know. Yep. But you go to the next town over. Yeah, and exactly. And you can start again, find a new wife, a new yeah. hotter wife. Yeah. A new hotter children. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially because often um, these courts, you know, even though they were centralized, they were organized around this, you know, larger Europe-wide church, the courts themselves didn't always have immense scope. So if someone, if you wanted to raise a case against someone who was living 200 miles away... They weren't going to be able to do anything. You know, they'd say, good luck. <laughs> Go find them. <laughs> it's like trying to extradite somebody from, like, North Korea. Yeah. It's not happening. <laughs> yeah. Basically, basically. Um, and then we've talked about annulment. It's also worth saying that there was a second type of separation. So if it could not be proven, or if the spouses did not wish to prove that their marriage was illegitimate from the start... It was also possible to petition an ecclesiastical court to grant you separate rights to simply live apart from each other. And most often this was in the case of abuse or violence um, on the part of one partner. And you might be asking, well, if people could just theoretically live separately and there wouldn't necessarily be immediate consequences, What's the need for that? Well, it's often the case that one partner didn't want the other partner to leave. We see this happen sort of both ways, in that sometimes it was the woman who was trying to leave if a man was being violent to his wife, 
then a woman might have to go before a court and try to prove this often by trying to find witnesses of his violence or by showing physical signs of his abuse in terms of violence um, or wounds or bruises on her body to prove this. And this was really important because if, as a woman, you just picked up and left and your husband didn't want you to, it's entirely possible that he could seek legal action on that basis alone. There were a lot of different ways a man could do this, but because women often didn't own property or earn money in these arrangements, a man could actually bring his wife to court for things like the clothes that she was wearing to try to recover the value that he had lost for, for instance, you know, anything that he had given her that she was wearing, or even her own possessions that she had taken away. Likely those had been things that he had bought or acquired for her. So that was pretty serious stuff. Gnarly stuff, yeah. And actually anyone that abetted a woman in doing this, anyone that sort of sheltered a woman who had run away from her husband or who had helped her get out could actually be arrested and brought to court as well for kidnapping. Even if the woman had left on her own terms, that kidnapped wasn't- Kidnapped herself. That wasn't something that the courts recognized. And so it was considered a crime as well to separate a wife from her husband because unless there was, you know, proof that people that the marriage was either invalid or that these two people shouldn't be living together because it was, you know, a violent, dangerous situation. Um, until you could prove that, you were getting in the way of, you know, uh, a union that was sanctified by God. Bummer. So yeah, pretty big bummer. But yeah, we so, also so the legal so the legal system it's not as simple it's not as cut and dry as sort of as we often sort of think in in the modern period we look back at the past we're like oh the law was just sort of brutalizing women like there was there were legal recourse for women to take sort of to to protect themselves but at the same time that in many ways those laws could be turned on them by a misogynistic society yeah it's quite a kind of complex situation because there are often a lot of cases of women who didn't want to be separated from their husbands if their husbands were um you know committing adultery or their husbands wanted to leave them for whatever reason my wife's a nag or whatever um, often it was actually quite advantageous and preferable for a woman to try to stay in these unions because as we've said women often owned little to very uh very little to no property had very few means of making money independently and life as a single um, married woman, which sounds like a bit of a paradox, <laughs> in the Middle Ages wasn't great. And so... Yeah, sex in the city, this ain't. <laughs> exactly. And so in some ways, this approach that wanted to force people to stay together no matter what, it could, yeah, it could really go either way for both partners, because in some cases it could benefit women by mm. ensuring that they did nevertheless have, you know, a husband who was required to take care of them and required to provide for them and house them. It's the double-edged sword of sort of paternalism, really, is, is baked into kind of the law. Yeah, um, the intimately oppressed. So often for people who, um, for whom it wasn't sort of possible to prove that an annulment was necessary, these were ways that you could approach marital disputes and unhappy marriages. But if you were lucky enough to have some reason why an annulment might be possible, then 
it was very similar. You would pay your legal fees and you would go before an ecclesiastical court and you would provide whatever evidence you could, often in the form of witnesses. Often, you know, you would have to bring up, you know, whatever, Henry the Weaver from down the road. <laughs> and he could say, oh, yeah, I heard, you know, the husband telling someone in secret that he is actually, uh, you know, not who he says he is. <gasps> He's actually... He's not Claude the, I don't know, Mason. He's actually Jod the, I don't know, um, whatever, <laughs> <John>? the Cooper. <laughs> Did you say Jod? I was trying to think of a name that sounded like Claude, then I realized I painted myself into a corner because there are absolutely none. Um, well, <laughs> well, what are you going to do? What I'm getting at here, yeah, not very articulately, I should say, but what I'm getting at here is that it was often very circumstantial it was often very much up to judgment and it was of course as these things often were very much susceptible to things like bribery and manipulation if you were very high up but these rules for what made an annulment okay were as we've touched on a bit before rather open to manipulation because they could be twisted one way to let you marry someone and then twisted another way to let you uh, get rid of them. An annulment was often preferable to just a legal right to separate because an annulment you could just go off and remarry, pretend the whole thing never happened. Hell yeah. So we've talked about sort of the legal right to separate, and we've talked about annulment. But what if I told you there was a secret third thing? You mean there's a better way? <laughs> That's What's the right. third thing? The third thing is divorce. Wait a minute, but we've already established the That's whole premise right. of this episode is that divorce doesn't exist. We lied. We lied again. Oh, we got you guys so good. It happened again. It keeps happening. God. Trust us all the other times, except for when we say things deliberately wrong for four episodes. Yeah, I or <laughs> mis Or uh, misrepresent uh, the entire premise of an episode uh, for an hour. I like, yeah, I like how we're just like, Guys, don't doubt us, you know, like, just infer when we're, re when we're joking, when we're being <laughs> ironic, when we're lying, and when we actually think what we're saying is just no, based on vibes. <gasps> you shouldn't actually have to ask me why I'm mad. <laughs> exactly. The fact that you had to ask is why I'm mad. <laughs> That's us. Yeah, so in lots of parts of Europe, um, the, 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 this system was, to quote Pirates of the Caribbean, more of a guidelines than a set of rules. <laughs> and of course, it was often the exception rather than the rule. Yes. So this wasn't uh, a frequent thing. And no. as time went on, this was clamped down on more and more by yes. the church. So we're referring to the earlier part of the yeah, medieval Yeah, especially period. the early Middle Ages, and especially parts of Europe where the institutional power of the church is quite weak. There uh, you have a country that's not part of the main continent of Europe, but instead there's a barrier 
between it and you. Some sort of watery barrier. Some sort of watery barrier. And then it's also behind some mountains. Exactly. From the other part of that that island. Exactly. We're talking a fuck now. <laughs> I'm not gonna do it. Uh, <laughs> talking about whales. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So in Wales, um, especially in 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 Gwynedd, uh, God, I hope I got that right. Uh, oh, we're gonna be pronouncing lot mispronouncing lots of Welsh names. Welsh Welsh listeners. I just want you to know two things. Number one, I'm a quarter Welsh. Number two, I don't speak Welsh. Um, I'm doing my best. I'm I'm trying to represent the people, but it's hard. Okay, there's a lot of consonants. <laughs> There's a lot of G's. Um, so in uh, Huynedd, there was a, a very specific uh, procedure uh, for separating um, separating from, from your partner that was separate from, uh, the, uh, from the ecclesiastical route. And this was laid down uh, in, in the law codes of, of the great Welsh princes in a, in a section called uh, the Laws of Women, which is great. Just a great name. And I'd like to... You always like to spring things on me and like give me wacky facts. I'm turning the tables, all right? Yes. This time I've brought something weird and medieval to yes. the show. So we're going to play a game, okay? Wow. It's called This is taking a dark turn. Who's getting it? <laughs> because in in medieval Welsh law, the rules about how property was divided were very specific. According to Welsh marriage law, after 7 years, Everything that a husband and wife owned became part of the same state, and so you had to split it. You had to split up the estate, you know, much like we do now, between them. And the Welsh law, the the, the sort of the great lawgivers of Wales, came up with a, with a very ingenious system. And so I'm going to give you some a list of some objects, household objects, uh, and I want you to tell me whether or not the uh, the husband or the wife would get them in the divorce. Okay. Oh, I'm so ready. This is right. I've, I've, I've been corrupted. I need to intuit the vibes of yes. medieval... Okay, I'm going to put myself in the headspace. Yes, of a medieval Welsh person. I can do that so easily. I think medieval... Sorry, before we get into this, uh -huh. medieval Welsh culture is so slept on in terms <laughs> it's of like so awesome. medieval world cultures. There's so much to love about medieval Wales. I think when we had Burns Night earlier this year, as you might recall... We all brought a poem to read. We didn't all bring Robert Burns' poems, and I brought a medieval Welsh poem. Oh, that's right. If you'll recall by the poet David, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. <laughs> so wrong, probably, but David Ap Gwilym. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, if you're Welsh, you probably already know about You sounded him. like you were choking. Yeah. Um, and he wrote a poem called The Girls of Lanbadarn, and this is a poem that he wrote about how none of the girls in his village want to sleep with him. <laughs> and it's essentially his internal monologue as he talks about, as he's in church, thinking about all of the girls and the fact that he doesn't go to church to pray. He goes to look at girls. <laughs> it's really good. So there's one bit where he says, There was no Sunday in Lanbadarn that I would not be, though others condemn it. So he's a, he's a known whore. He's a man whore. With my face toward the fine girl and the neck, nape of my neck toward the good God. <laughs> and then he has a bit where he, he switches to the perspective of the church girls. Oh, great. I'm sure this is normal. And um, it's uh, 
So he says... Oh my god, this hunk is looking at me. So he says, says a bright, fresh sweetheart to another, lively and famous for wit, the pale boy with the coquette's face and his sister's <laughs> hair on his head, adulterous is the looking of him that's with how the... I, Can I just say, that's a good description of Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> Adulterous is the looking of him with the crooked glance. He's acquainted with evil. <laughs> I mean, what a kid. He wrote a poem about oh. what a massive simp he is and how all the girls in his village think he's a huge creep. <laughs> which is so cool. It's a level of self-awareness you rarely see. Yeah. Uh, the, so, I want, I'm going to read you these, these objects. And I want you to tell me who gets them and why you th- what, what your reasoning is. So, first of all... Milk jugs. <laughs> I would say milk jugs are customarily the possessions of the wife because maybe What's your she'd be doing more of the milking. Bing! That's one point. Yes! Perfect. Brilliant. Okay, second question. We're keeping it fairly easy. A scythe. A scythe. You'd think that would be the man because he'd be out in the fields doing the, the scything. Correct. Ding! Two points. Uh, sheep. Sheep. Yeah. So who gets who gets the sheep? If you have like multiple animals, different kinds of animals, they're very specific about who gets what kind of animal. Well, traditionally spinning yarn is the woman's work. The yarn, the wool for the yarn comes from sheep. So I'd be tempted to say women get the sheep. Uh, no! Wrong. Sheep, men get sheep because you got to run around more to keep them. Oh, you're right. You have shepherds. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. How about this one? Pigs. Pigs. Oh no. Well, if men get the sheep, I feel like women should get the pigs. What's your rationale? <sighs> That's a good question. I mean, pigs are much easier to keep. You can basically just feed them whatever, so... Okay, that's pretty much the answer, but although it does say um, that uh, part of the reason is that sheep are better than pigs. Wow. Misogyny. Also, I know. pigs are great. Pigs are amazing. Pigs I are love fabulous. pigs. Every time I go to like a farm and see a pig, that's my day. Sheep are like... Love sheep, sheep are okay. Sheep are stupid. Yeah. Pigs are smart. Pigs are very intelligent. I don't know if you've ever... There's this um, book called um, Charlotte's Web. It's oh, it's some pig. It's basically about how great pigs are. Yeah, some pig. The they moral would... of the story... The moral of the story is that pigs are really cool. Charlotte didn't write some sheep. Yeah, no. She wrote she did shit not. sheep. Exactly. That's on the other side of the Woo! bar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last animal. Oh, no, sorry. Not last animal. Uh, goats. Who's getting goats? El Chupacabra. Mm. Um, he kills goats. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> that's the legend. He, he kills your goats. Um, never mind. That didn't land the way I thought it would, which is my fault. Um, I'm going to say... I don't know. Goats are very similar to sheep, so I feel like women should get the goats because men are getting the sheep. You're right about who gets it. You're wrong about why. The consensus is that women get uh, goats because goats are the worst animal. Oh, goats, that's Because goats rude. suck. <laughs> that's horrible. I mean, a goat bit my finger once, but... They are really mean. Um, so, okay, so... They're insolent. If you have... If, you're, if you in your household have uh, one really big axe for, like, slaughtering animals and one hand axe, uh, who gets the big axe? I mean, you'd think it would be the man, because he's doing the slaughtering. Wrong. What? Woman gets the big axe, and the man gets the hand Yo! axe. Yo! Yeah, Why feminism. Why is that? 
we'll explain in a minute once the game's done. So how about the quern? So the thing that you used to grind the grains into into making flour. Well, that's a rough one. I feel like that's probably more women's work. I'd say the woman. Wrong. You break it in half. What? Yes, you have to split it King in half. King Solomon style. Yeah, exactly. No way. Yeah. Um, Doesn't it, does that it's does that work? No, it does not. Because and that's the point. It's about <sighs> making it non-usable. Um, okay, last question. Uh, so let's say you have several cats, as we all aspire to do. Oh, one day. One day. Uh, who's getting the cats? And they don't have to be. They don't have to. They don't have to all go to the one person. I'll help you that much. Interesting. Um. Ooh, that makes me wonder. I don't know. I mean, just saying you're going to split up the cats. By the way, I hope you've all been playing along at home. Yes. I would say you s divide the number of cats equally between the two, but if it's an odd number, the other person is entitled to the first litter of kittens born by the other person's cats. God, that's a good system. Unfortunately, eh, no. Uh, the man gets the first cat. Seems so equitable. Uh, the woman gets all the other cats. What? Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. So... Think about what's being done here. Because uh, if, if you put this all together, it makes no goddamn sense. Uh, so the husband can scythe, but he can't make flour. He can't actually make bread. Uh, he has pigs, but he can't slaughter them because he doesn't have a big axe. Uh, he, if he has a, and he has a cat, which means that he can't effectively... He only has one cat, which means that he, can, he can't effectively store any grain that he does harvest because rats will get it. So what's being done here that's genius, and, th and this is, this is this, I should say, this next part I have lifted directly uh, from an article, which I have one of my favorite things I've ever read for this show, called uh, Divorce Medieval Welsh Style. We'll put it in the description. It's, yes. it's, it actually rules. It's free to access. I recommend everybody reads it. Um, so what the author says, uh, the author, what, what Robin Chapman Stacey, who wrote this article, argues, is that this is a theatrical exercise to be played out in front of the entire community to illustrate the pointlessness of divorce. Wow. He says, you know, it's burlesque. That's... My love for the medieval Welsh has grown tenfold, and there was already a lot of it before. They're so cool. They're so cool. So why, so, so why would you do this? Now, my boy Robin Chapman Stacy, he actually has a really interesting idea. So he argues in this article that um, in early medieval Wales, uh, quite often the people who were coming up with the laws, the, the people who were writing legislation for the king to sort of enact, uh, or the prince to enact, were off, quite often themselves storytellers um, and, and poets, going back all the way to sort of the bardic traditions of like um, early, early Celtic societies. So these storytellers are using the law to act out a story, a fable about the pointlessness of divorce and the wonderfulness of marriage. Wow, you've blown my mind. It's so good, isn't it? That's so cool. Nice. Yeah, it's a very powerful thing, this sort mm -hmm. of sense of social coercion. And it's interesting to see it interacting with the law. <laughs> and it makes sense that, you know, the law was written by a bunch of angsty theater kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a bunch of Welsh theater kids. I mean, 
I say get all the Welsh theatre kids and put them in Parliament right now. I'd love to see what they come <laughs> up with. <laughs> Michael Sheen, Prime Minister. Yeah. So another sort of, another notable exception to laws about divorce was Ireland. So this is a recurring thing we see with the British Isles that they were and always have been to a certain extent separate from the rest of Europe geographically and also thereby societally and socially and, and also and also I should add because of that separation often seen as not worth bothering with <laughs> from the great from the perspective of the great powers of Europe we were mostly we were mostly kind of left to do our own thing <laughs> especially pre-Norman invasion so yeah, especially in early medieval Ireland, laws were much more lax than they were later on in the medieval period. And there were sort of Irish-specific laws governing divorce. So some people have even described these laws, in a sense, as being rather progressive, perhaps not feminist, but much more progressive than other laws of the time. And in these laws, there were often not only provisions for divorce proceedings, but rather equitable precisions, provisions for divorce proceedings. Um, so there were quite a few reasons why you could divorce someone. So there were provisions for divorce for all of the usual things like adultery and um, impotence, but there were also lots of great reasons why you could divorce your spouse. So women could divorce their husbands if they suspected them of homosexuality. Wait a minute. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. We are not endorsing uh, persecution of gay people. No, we're not. Um, but just clarify that. No. Um, but. But yeah, if you're in a marriage, if, if you're, if you're in a marriage. It's progressive to be able to divorce your husband if he's gay. Like, yeah, but not if you think he's gay. Well, <laughs> you know. Like, you know what? <laughs> You'd have to prove it. But that was just, you'd bring it to court if you thought he was gay, and then you'd get someone down to say, yeah, I bummed him last night at the pub. <laughs> <laughs> and then you could divorce. <sighs> um, you could also divorce him for hitting you hard enough to cause a blemish. So that's okay, perhaps not good. progressive um, in the strictest sense, because he could still hit you, but he couldn't hit you hard enough to bruise you. Um, it's better than nothing. Better than nothing, you could divorce him if he talked with other people about your sex life, which they, I think we should is have great. that now. Honestly, absolutely, and you could also divorce him if. So I should backtrack a bit actually and say um, polygamy was quite common, um, distinct from sort of polyamory and other forms of multiple marriage, and that specifically it would be men marrying multiple women, um, but despite men being able to take multiple wives, there was kind of a wife hierarchy. And if you were, for instance, the first wife, then you had a degree of control over the subsequent wives because you could actually divorce your husband if you didn't like the new wife. Uh, that seems fair. Yeah, it seems absolutely fair. And not only You want to be with this bitch? Fine. Okay, I shouldn't really have said that these laws are progressive because a lot of them are just <laughs> insane. Um, for instance, as well... Um, if you didn't like the new wife, then you had um, three days after the new wife arrived if, in which you could um, vent your anger at the new wife by hitting her, what? scratching her, and pulling her hair, provided you didn't leave a mark. The fuck? <laughs> and this so, is progressive to you. 
all right, forget I ever said progressive, but it's giving women a far greater degree of autonomy than they had across the pond in England, specifically at least, where they were basically property. And if you didn't like something, it was, you know, put up or shut up. Right. So, and there were also much more progressive laws for, for instance, inheritance and ownership of land by women. Right. So women could be gifted and inherit land, um, inherit land just as easily as men. Hmm. And there were also specific provisions for why men could divorce women. A great one is if um, he suspects his wife of being a witch. Divorce. Spooky. Spooky. Ooh. So, as we've said, these are pretty specific to Great Britain and Ireland. But there's a, but there's a particular point here to be made, which is that these laws were in many cases, co- especially in Wales, were coexisting with and in direct conflict with what was the 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 position of the church and by the way you have so many like examples of english bishops writing back to rome and like they're doing some crazy stuff over in wales but welsh people have never cared what english bishops think historically throughout history mom can you come pick me up they're breaking their corn in half So yeah, so so you have like in areas the point being that like in areas where the, the, the power of the institutional church rather than religion as a sort of abstract idea, but like the institutions of the church was weak, society sort of evolved in different directions and often sort of kept on things and inheritances from the from the sort of pre Christian uh, cultural landscape. So we've already kind of discussed the ways in which marriage and divorce exist in this kind of intersecting world of, of yes, of, of love and romance and sexuality, but also of, of political power and of, and of law. But as we've seen with um, examples we've discussed, like King Lothair, this put a massive strain on marriage as an institution, and especially mm. when it came to aristocrats and royals, on the institution of marriage in the public eye, because in order to separate from someone, you had to go through this huge, lengthy process. It was very difficult, and to a certain extent, it was, in to the extent that that marriage was uh, an act of, you know, power consolidation, it was, it, it became rather incompatible with the church and with the Catholic Church's doctrines on love and marriage. Something was going to break. It was just a question of when. Absolutely. And the big when, you, you've known he's coming the whole time. The most divorced man <laughs> ever to live. Certainly in the, in the Kingdom of England. Just a, a man, a man with... Many divorces, many wives, giant codpiece, a love, a love of the carnal, <laughs> love of the carnal, love of hunting, Henry the Eighth, Henry the Eighth, who, given that this is a medieval podcast and Henry the Eighth isn't really a medieval figure, um, we're not going to get many chances to talk about him. So let's just do a quick round robin, one sentence on Henry the Eighth because he's just such a wonderful character. Absolute unit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. Horny megalomaniac. <laughs> like he's such a great character. I've, no, I've... when I see a picture of him, I just think of that tweet that's like in awe of the size of his flag. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I fell in love with him. Uh, not literally, God no. 
um, when reading the Wolf Hall books, and he's just because he's just this terrifying maniac who who can have you like murdered horribly. But, but he's, he's also, so pathetic. He's also a bit cringe, I was gonna he's say. He's so cringe. Yeah. So Henry VIII is obviously famous for his divorce. His divorce of... Specifically, his first divorce of Catherine of Aragon. Um, and of course, we all know the story, but let's recap very briefly. Um, Catherine of Aragon, who was his brother's wife before he died, um, the princess of Spain, and uh, he was she was unable to give him an heir. Right? It was it was a big mess, and Henry VIII wanted an heir, so he took a fancy to a lady called Anne Boleyn, and he wants Anne Boleyn to be um, to be his queen and give him many babies. Right, and he he wants that so bad that he breaks religion forever. <laughs> he he ends up uh, separating England from from the jurisdiction of the Catholic Church. He sets himself up as the head of the church in England, um, all so that he can. Get rid of his Sp- of his old Spanish wife, who he hates, and get in his new hot English wife, who he will immediately dump anyway, um, because he uh, gave birth to a girl. Ooh. I know, I know. Um, so why did he go to such lengths? Because it wasn't that he had a great issue with the with the doctrine of the Catholic Church when. When, after Henry VIII has already been declared head of the church in England, uh, he sits down and he sort of writes out what he thinks about all the sort of re- uh, religious controversies of the day, and it actually is a, with a few exceptions, is a fairly uh, doctrinaire Catholic worldview. He's a pretty, sta- in terms of his actual views, he's a pretty standard guy. By the way, that uh, doctrine was written down in an act called The Act Abolishing Diversity of Opinions. Yes! Uh, but there's no reason to think of him as like a as as a religious reformer, as we would think about people like Martin Luther or John Calvin. No, I would argue that we need to understand Henry VIII's uh, divorce and, or sorry, uh, I should say, technically annulment, because it was technically an annulment that he sought from the Pope originally, um, annulment and remarriage as part of the political consolidation. Right. So think about what he's doing when he's declaring himself head of the church. By doing so, he actually he actively sort of sublimates the entire religious architecture and like religious bureaucracy and church court system that we've been talking about under the personal rule of the monarch. So he brings the he brings the the royal court system and the religious court system into the same un, under the same authority. It's all top down. Hmm. Curious. A a, a modernizing leader. Uh, creating simplified, uh, standardized bureaucracies. Interesting, interesting. Put, put, it, put a pin in that. But he's also doing other stuff as well. Um, he is, he breaks up the monasteries with the help of everybody's favorite boy, Big Tommy Cromwell. Woohoo! Um, he was cool until he wasn't. Thus breaking the church, but he, what he did, what that did was, it, the, the monasteries were huge landowners. They, had, they were independently wealthy and therefore independently powerful. By breaking the back of the monasteries, he's annihilating the church as abil- the church's ability to act as an independent political actor. Again, sublimating everything under the sovereign monarch. He also, we talked about Wales, he also does some stuff to Wales. Wales have been operating since, really since the defeat of Owain Glyndir, as a sort of semi-detached principality of England, Henry VIII passes a law in Parliament which makes Wales part of the Kingdom of England, standardizing the law across his entire territory, except for Ireland, who he sort of leaves to 
their own devices. And he also, he, his one great sort of big Protestant thing that he does is printing a Bible in English, which removes the power of the church as an intermediary between the population and God. If the Bible can only be printed in Latin, and only really the churchmen speak Latin and read Latin, then you can't have a personal relationship with God. You, it has to be mediated by religious authority. So all of this put together, he's creating a standardized political system under him. And all so that he can get laid and have kids. This isn't to say that, you know, that the English Reformation, as it will later end up being called, is not sort of motivated by Henry, the fact that Henry VIII was, as we mentioned, a horny megalomaniac and the saddest sad sack to ever live. It's inextricably linked. You needed somebody who was unhinged enough and <laughs> horny enough to, to uh, start the process that was coming anyway. He basically took Protestantism and just didn't read the instructions. <laughs> and you can see that, by the way. He did if not you, read the terms and conditions. If you go to, like, uh, go to an English cathedral and then compare it to, like, a country that had an actual reformation, like Germany or Scotland, they don't look, they, 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 they look, they basically look like the Vatican. So anyway, this, this is, to, to bring this all full circle, you know, there is no better illustration of the way that divorce and marriage were inextricably linked to political power and, and question of who gets to rule and who is really in charge here than the way that the entire edifice comes crumbling down. Because there's no coming back from that at that point. When, when a country the size of England goes rogue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a common misconception that medieval monarchs had this sort of absolute power where they could just do anything that they wanted. And if you look closer, if you zoom in really on basically any monarch in the Middle Ages, what you see is that it was this constant, constant struggle in this extremely unstable state where they were just always fending off, you know, aristocrats and the church and always trying to consolidate their power, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But it was really during this period of transition out of the Middle Ages and into the early modern period that, you know, the time became right and the ingredients were there to um, sort of accelerate this, uh, you know, this, this writing of, writing the birth out of, of the, the The birth of the modern world. Yeah. Where religion is now subservient yeah. to politics in a way that it, it w could not have been before. Yeah, which then paved the way for religion to become much more subservient to science and to philosophy and to everyday life in general. So in much the same way that uh, Doritos killed every medieval peasant, uh, divorce built the modern state. There you go. then. I don't think there's much more to say on the matter, so let's wrap it up for today on that brilliant note. Just a few reminders. First of all, I've got a book coming out November Woo! 2nd. Weird Medieval Guys, the book, coming to bookstores and book websites near you. You people have been fantastic already, 
it's 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 I'm I'm so proud of you. Thank I'm you so guys. happy to see that people are already really excited about it. But that does not mean that if you're on the fence that you shouldn't order it already. Please order it. It's such a good book. I have it I'm literally looking at it right now. My children are hungry. It's gorgeous. It's like it's 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 a wonderful little artifact. You can have it in your bedroom, in your living room, in your bathroom, anywhere. It doesn't matter. It is gonna brighten up your home no matter what. That is spot on, spot on. Couldn't have said it better myself. I'll drop a link in the description to pre-order it. And thank you guys as well for 200 reviews on Spotify. I just saw Woo, we 205 star reviews. 205 star reviews. So thank you guys so much for that. Um, and thank you guys for all your kind words about the podcast as well. Um, we have a lovely review to read out from Michelle who on our Doritos episode left us uh, this wonderful note. Guy Fieri brought me here. <laughs> Glad I gave this a chance. I love it. Thank you, Michelle. I don't know how the Guy Fieri to Weird Medieval Guys pipeline works exactly, <laughs> but I trust in its power. I like to think that Guy Fieri listened to this show and was like, you should listen to this excellent podcast. Oh God, he's doing the voice again. <laughs> but... The bottom line is thank you, and if you haven't already, we would absolutely love it if you left us a review on Spotify. Preferably Ideally, five stars. A five star one. Or, what, or your podcast catcher of choice. Exactly. And um, drop us a little note as well in the what did you think about this episode box, and we will be sure to read some of our favorite ones out yes. at the end of our next episodes. All right. We love you. We love you. Until next time. I'm off to the pub. <laughs> I need to see my wife. <laughs>